Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. Forever etched into the infamous racially tinged history of North Carolina is the 1898 Wilmington Massacre, which occurred on November 10th of that year. This event, which constitutes the only successful coup d'etat that has occurred in the United States is being remembered this week by thousands of people in Wilmington and other parts of the state. The 1898 Wilmington massacre was neither isolated nor spontaneous as it resulted from the planning of leaders of the North Carolina Democratic Party and was actively aided and abetted by Josephus Daniels, the owner and publisher of the Raleigh News and Observer, Bernard Simmons, the Democratic Party state chairperson, Charles Acock, a wealthy Goldsboro Democrat, and later governor of North Carolina, George Roundtree and Hugh McCray, local Democratic Party leaders and others too numerous to name. Central to the Democratic Party effort was the creation and circulation of a declaration of white supremacy which captured the mood and purpose of the military invasion of Wilmington on that fateful day in November, 1898. The massacre resulted in the deaths of hundreds, the destruction and theft of real and personal property, the banishment of African-American political and business leaders, and the end of a robust participation in politics by African-Americans in the state. It also resulted in the imposition of Jim Crow rule in the state, which legally relegated and subjugated African-Americans into a diminished status of citizenship, which sanctioned the racial discrimination and oppression that existed in the state until the 1970s and remnants of it remains today. Tonight, we are going to discuss the 1898 Wilmington Massacre and its continuing impact on present-day North Carolina politics. This discussion is held in the hindsight of the January 6th attempted insurrection at the nation's capital, which sought to prevent the transfer of presidential power from Donald Trump to Joseph Biden. Joining with us for this discussion are journalist Cash Michaels, who is a highly regarded reporter for the Wilmington Journal, the Carolinians and other media outlets, and of course, our political guru, Professor Jarvis Hall of the NCCU Department of Political Science. So thank you gentlemen for joining us for this discussion this evening. Happy to be here. Well, starting us off with this uh, uh, discussion, and I want to just kind of hear from both of you because you come from different perspectives. Why should people know about and be concerned about the history surrounding the 1898 Wilmington Massacre. So uh, 
since he is a guest, let's start with uh, Cash Michaels, and then we'll go to our resident guru uh, after he has concluded. Well, Professor, I'll tell you, uh, they, they better learn about it before it becomes absolutely against the law. <laughs> let's put it that way. As we, as you and I uh, and the audience, uh, as, as we speak and listen, uh, there are those out there who are of the same mindset of the uh, white supremacists uh, over, well, 123 years ago, uh, who uh, wanted to supplant any thought, uh, any uh, suggestion whatsoever that uh, justice can be multiracial uh, or multicultural. Uh, they uh, uh, do not want in our schools. And the thing that always always uh, tickles me about this whole discussion, not the one we're having, but the one that, that we're having nationally about what they call uh, CRT, critical race theory, which in fact really is not, but that's another show, that's another story, uh, is the fact that um, uh, public schools have a hard time teaching uh, about the civil rights movement and about black history, they have a very difficult time of doing that correctly anyway. So uh, I, it tickles me that, that here it is, you have people trying to outlaw it uh, when it really is not even, not even being done properly to begin with. We've heard horror stories of uh, what white teachers in particular have done with black students, um, you know, saying, uh, uh, you know, if, if this were a hundred years ago, you'd be a slave or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the mindset um, um, is, is what we're fighting against. The mindset has, has never changed. Um, uh, you mentioned January 6th, the insurrection at the US Capitol. Uh, we see now that we have to be defensive about our citizenship. We have to be defensive about our election, our electoral system. Uh, we have to be defensive about our very existence in this country. If we are uh, people and families of color, uh, and thus uh, uh, 1898 and the lessons learned from it are instructive uh, for us and for this entire nation, and more people should know about it. Yeah, yeah I'll just add to that, uh, uh, Cash, that. Um, one of the lessons of, of 1898 and all of the lessons that we have learned since then, uh, because we continue to be uh, educated and re-educated about um, uh, just the power of white supremacy and how it undergirds, uh, especially the, um, the uh, political process in this country. Um, we know that democracy, American democracy is tenuous. Uh, in many ways, it's relative, it, it's conditional. Uh, it depends upon who you are. Uh, it's something that is uh, not a uh, constant, is not anything that is established and in, and in place and just let it run on itself. It's something that uh, has to be monitored, uh, that people have to be actively engaged in maintaining our democracy. Um, and the lessons that we learn is that, unfortunately, what we see is some of the same things that took place in 1898 really taking place today. 
um, especially the use of intimidation, uh, the uh, fraud uh, that takes place, uh, the stuffing of uh, ballot boxes and 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 um, um, and the modern day versions of those kinds of things, especially the uh, voter suppression efforts uh, that we have seen uh, proliferate around the country. And so it is critically important that we, we remember not only 1898, but that we remember uh, all of the historical events and the contemporary events uh, that are taking place uh, that uh, remind us that we need to be active participants in maintaining and strengthening our democracy to turn it into what you call a multicultural, uh, multi-ethnic uh, democracy, which it, which it has never been. You know, speaking of the, of the history of that time, we saw the emergence from the slave economy and the slavery, enslavement period, uh, and the uh, development of robust political participation by African-Americans during the uh, first reconstruction that uh, we had going on where African-Americans were actively engaged and involved in uh, the development of this, this American democracy, as uh, Professor Hall would, uh, would describe it, and succeeded in being active participants in that political process. Can you talk about to our audience, you know, what was it that triggered the events surrounding and leading to the uh, 1898 uh, Wilmington massacre? What was it in the mindset, as uh, Cash uh, would say, that caused this uh, military invasion, which created this or called, resulted in this coup d'etat that uh, occurred uh, in Wilmington? Uh, Professor Hall. Well, I think um, underlying everything that took place in Wilmington in 1898 was the uh, political success of the uh, of the fusionist movement, uh, um, where Republicans um, and uh, populists were able to uh, experience some degree of a political success, uh, supplanting to some extent the uh, power of um, of the Democratic Party at that time. Which, of course, as we know at that time was really the party of white supremacy. So that was sort of there. The precipitating event, of course, was the editorial uh, by Alex Manley uh, in his newspaper about uh, miscegenation and, uh, and, uh, 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 and, and white women enjoying the uh, company of, uh, of a black man. Uh, and that appeared to be the trigger. But uh, the larger issue, of course, was the political, the economic success of the um, um, of the black community in Wilmington, and especially, as I said, the uh, success of the fusionist movement, which really was providing a model for what uh, a multi-ethnic uh, democracy could look like. And and uh, uh, in the parlance of uh, of Star Wars, the Empire struck back. <laughs> And Cash, you, you, you're a journalist, and uh, Professor Hall mentioned the uh, Alex Manley's uh, press and uh, his, uh, and, 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 and that's a part of the history as well. The, uh, one of the uh, first daily African-American newspapers that, have, that has ever uh, been uh, present in 
uh, the United States. And a central part of this uh, uh, uprising was the uh, burning down of the uh, Alex Manley uh, press at the uh, Daily Record. So from, from your vantage point and, and your study of this issue, and I know you've had a lot of uh, interactions with it, uh, how, how, how do you see the, the role of and impact of the, the, the press uh, during those days that uh, resulted in uh, what occurred on November 10th, 1898? Well, as, as, as you and, and Professor uh, uh, Jarvis Hall have, have indicated, uh, the uh, daily record was, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the only daily black newspaper in the United States at the time. I, I could be wrong, but I, I believe, uh, I, I don't believe I've ever, I've ever heard anything to contradict that. The uh, publisher was a, a, a fair-skinned African-American by the name of Alex uh, Manley, who you would not be able to tell if you saw him walking down the street, uh, wh whether he was black uh, or white or anything. Uh, and uh, as you alluded to, uh, there was a, an editorial uh, in the paper that actually was a response to uh, something that had been written about the fact that uh, black men at the time and white women uh, enjoyed uh, each other's company, to, to put, it, put it mildly. Uh, scandalous at the time, to say, to say the least. And, um, and uh, Mr. Manley published uh, an editorial that there, there's conflicting information as to whether or not he actually wrote the editorial, but he nonetheless published it. Of that, there's no doubt um, that, that in fact, um, uh, you know, why not? Why, why shouldn't uh, uh, black men and white women enjoy each other's company? They're human beings, you know, and blah, 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 blah. Well, why'd he go do that? You know what, what one could say um, that that lit the, the fuse was already out, and and that lit it, and um, what a, a a mob of of white supremacists uh, did in response was um, come and burn down uh, the the building where the Daily Record uh, was housed, the destroyed the printing press, uh, and stood in front of it and took the famous pictures that we. Uh, that we see today of them destroying that press. That press and that black newspaper, the Daily Record, symbolized the progress of African-Americans in Wilmington at that time, which was the largest city, as you well know, Irv, the largest city in North Carolina. Uh, at one time, if I'm not mistaken, considered to be uh, so successful and so prosperous, uh, considered to be the capital or, 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 or at least should have been the capital in the minds of, 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 of many people. And in terms of the African-American community, you had uh, a successful business people, you had artisans, uh, you had uh, everybody. I mean, after the Civil War, African-Americans uh, uh, flocked to Wilmington if they weren't already there, and, and they did very well for themselves. The white power structure, uh, which at the time was democratic. The white power structure did not want to share power. They hated this. And they did everything in their power to undermine this. And the, the interesting part about this history, again, as you well know, through the work of, of, of the commission, and you might want to shed light on what commission we're talking about later on, 
since you were the vice chair, uh, was that the United States uh, uh, government, the Congress had passed a law that in situations where you had insurrections or all kinds of, uh, of, of, of uh, problems in, in local states or, or cities and what have you, that the federal government uh, by law, were, were not allowed to get involved. They 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 just let it let it happen. If somebody, if, if a group of white men came came by your house and, and and burned it down, the federal government said, "Well, we have a lawyer that says we can't do anything about that." You know, if the governor of your state uh, uh, can't handle it, we sure and aren't going to mess with it. And and so thus we were left to our own devices, and and there were no poor devices indeed. And, and as a result. Uh, uh, this idea of, of poor white farmers in particular and, and African-Americans coming together in, 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 a, in a fusionist uh, 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 party was something that was very threatening to the white democratic power structure. And uh, that was the reaction. And it, it kicked off what we now know today as Jim Crow laws across the South. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review. And we are talking uh, this evening about the uh, history of the uh, 1898 uh, Wilmington uh, massacre and its uh, present uh, impact. And we're talking with uh, journalist uh, Cash Michaels, uh, who has uh, studied uh, this uh, issue and writes for the uh, Wilmington uh, Journal, among other uh, publication that's there, and uh, as well as uh, Professor Jarvis Hall, uh, who is with the uh, NCCU Political Science Department. Uh, we want to uh, take our break right now. I want you to uh, stay with us as we continue uh, this uh, discussion at the culmination of the uh, many commemorations that are occurring uh, this week. Uh, regarding the uh, Wilmington uh, 1898 uh, massacre. So stay with us and we'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. This week we have a segment on the Wilmington massacre of 1898. At the time, Wilmington had a booming black population. There were black doctors, teachers, and even elected officials. Most black voters were Republican at the time. The Populist Party, which was comprised of mostly white farmers, joined forces with the Republican Party to create the Fusion Party. The Fusion Party was in control of North Carolina and specifically Wilmington. The Democrats saw this level of black prosperity as a disgrace and created a plan to gather the white vote to make sure that white supremacists had control of the city and the state. They did this by releasing propaganda inciting fear of the black man especially when it came to the virtue of the white woman. On election day, the Democrats attacked and blocked black voters from casting their vote. This did nothing to undo the economic black power in the city, nor did it affect the officials whose seats were not up for election. On the morning of November 10, 1898, hundreds of armed white men marched to the office of the Daily Record and set it on fire. The Daily Record was a local black-owned newspaper. They then went to City Hall and forced all of the Fusion officials to resign and replace them with white supremacists. The mob grew to the thousands and spilled out onto the streets. There is no official number of how many black people were murdered that day, but it is estimated in the hundreds. Thousands of black residents fled the area for their safety. It was 90 years before North Carolina elected another black Congress member. This is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening.
Okay, we're back with the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue this conversation about the uh, history of the 1898 uh, Wilmington uh, massacre and uh, its uh, present impact. Uh, we're talking with uh, Cash Michael, uh, journalist, uh, well-renowned, regard, highly regarded uh, journalist here in uh, North Carolina, who uh, also writes for the uh, Wilmington Journal. Uh, and a number of other publications uh, in the state, along with uh, uh, Professor uh, Jarvis Hall, who's with our political science department here at North Carolina Central University. Um, and you talked about the, uh, the role of the uh, Democratic Party in uh, fomenting uh, the uh, 1898 uh, Wilmington Rebellion. Why is it that today, in spite of that history, African-American members of the Democratic Party. Professor Hall, we'll start with you since you're the political scientist. You want me to go into my, uh, the, the political party lecture for my black politics class, right? So, so uh, of course, as we know, um, and I'll try to make this as, as succinct as possible, but um, it is a long history. Uh, as we know, African-Americans, when they entered the uh, political process as voters, uh, African-American men anyway, they entered as Republicans uh, because of the role uh, that Republicans played uh, uh, during the Civil War and, um, um, and the abolition of slavery and, and the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment and, and all that. The change, many uh, say, uh, began to take place uh, during the New Deal period. Um, uh, where we began to see uh, the, the formation of what became known as the New Deal Coalition uh, that uh, supported much of the success of the Democratic Party during the 20th century, uh, because many of the uh, of the policies of, uh, of Franklin Roosevelt during the New Deal period uh, uh, tend to benefit, uh, especially African American workers. Now, as we also know. Uh, many of the programs intentionally excluded African-American workers, but, the, but for the most part, it was viewed as a positive by African-Americans. So that sort of began the process. Uh, and then we uh, saw that um, um, uh, through a number of executive orders, Roosevelt, uh, the President Roosevelt and President Truman did things that were viewed as favorable to um, African-Americans um, uh, in the election of 1960, um, um, uh, when uh, a candidate, John Kennedy, uh, was able to play a significant role in the freeing of uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from a, uh, 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 a prison in uh, Georgia where people feared he would be hurt. Uh, that had a significant impact on support that he was able to get from the black community. And then Lyndon Johnson came in and uh, he had a series of, of, uh, of um, pieces of legislation that his name was on that was promoted by uh, the civil rights movement, uh, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Fair Housing Act of 1968. All of these were viewed as positive things done by the Democratic Party. So again, the shift took place uh, 
beginning with the New Deal period and because of a series of things that took place after that, what we see now is a solid uh, marriage, if you will, between the Democratic Party um, and the African-American community. Now, when I say solid marriage, I just mean that they are, are together with regard to voting. But of course, like many marriages, uh, there, there are some, um, uh, some conflicts here and there, uh, uh, some taken for granted here and there. And uh, so that's, that's, that's in a succinct way um, uh, how that took place uh, for a lecture that I would usually do in about uh, in about two days, um, the professor Jonah. So, <laughs> so I want to get your thoughts on the notion that when those who have like interests come together, uh, you can have political power, and that's something that we saw in Wilmington in the late 1800s. And there was, as um, Cash, both you and Jarvis talked about there was an effort to try and break this fusion movement, this coalition. Can you share your thoughts on how those same techniques are being used today to try and divide and conquer, even when you're looking at people who have aligned interests, and how the result of that is that you have people who are, in fact, voting against interest or voting for leadership that really don't have policies that will that will benefit them. And Cash, let's start with you. Well, you know, I, I immediately when when uh, Professor Dawson when, when you say that, I immediately think of the uh, poor white citizens who religiously uh, vote Republican, uh, unaware or simply not caring about the fact that the uh, the rich Republicans that they uh, repeatedly vote for um, to either put in office or keep in office um, are are lying to them, uh, do not represent their interests at all. And in fact, what we uh, may be seeing, and indeed there, there's evidence to, to suggest what we are seeing are uh, rich white Republican uh, uh, politicians uh, who, let, let me turn that around. Uh, what we are seeing are, are poor uh, uh, white Republican voters who will vote for rich white Republican politicians uh, any day of the week any hour of the day, um, as long as they are of the mindset that um, these politicians are against us, that these politicians are able to run on platforms that suggest that um, uh, Democrats will waste money uh, on black people and um, all the, the new uh, uh, Booker Bear, uh, uh, not really new, but, but, but comparatively speaking, um, quote unquote illegal immigrants. Uh, when, when, when you hear white Republicans today 
complain about immigration is not so much that they're concerned about the fact that um, all of these people, quote unquote, will come into the kitchen and we have no, uh, come into the uh, country and we have no room for them. Uh, but rather that the Democratic Party is trying to get as many illegal uh, immigrants into the, uh, in as possible to be a, a voting block for them. And Republicans don't want that to happen, no matter what. So when uh, uh, President Trump, for instance, will separate families or put people uh, uh, in, in, in jails or, or whatever he can do, uh, lie about who's coming over the border and why, um, poor white Republicans are all, all for that. Because as far as they're concerned, um, these people are going to come in to take resources. And they don't want that. And so thus, as far as they're concerned, they are voting to preserve the country. Now, having said that, there are, there are a number of Black people in the country who feel somewhat, uh, somewhat the same way. Uh, if, if, if you talk to them, um, they feel that uh, uh, immigrants are coming into the country taking jobs that normally would belong to African-Americans uh, 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 are getting uh, 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 resources that African-Americans can't qualify for. I think there's a big controversy right now from uh, uh, President Biden as to whether or not uh, immigrant families who have been broken up are going to get uh, uh, an alleged $450,000 uh, per family uh, from, from, from the government. And he, he denies this is going to happen. Then we see stuff later on that says uh, it very well may happen. It, it, you know, you don't know what to believe. But we do know that one of the reasons why it's it's a headline is because you have these these concerns out there. A, a lot of those concerns are rooted in racism, um, and and the Republicans are able to uh, uh, make a lot of noise and get a lot of headway with this kind of stuff, and have been doing so for years, and will continue to do so. Um, they it would seem as if they speak to what the true heart of this country is and has been since 19, uh, since 1898, if not before. Yeah, I, I need to amend my uh, brief history of, of, uh, of the relationship of African-Americans to, um, to the Democratic Party, but talking a little bit about the Republican Party, because of course we know the Republican Party became uh, white supremacy found a new home in the Republican Party, and especially during uh, the Southern strategy uh, of Richard Nixon in 1968 and all of the subsequent elections that have taken place where uh, poor whites again and those who uh, subscribe to white supremacy uh, felt as if you know, the Republican Party was a party that would promote the interests of, uh, of white people against those who were undeserving and, and, and undeserving, of course, would be uh, African-Americans as well as other um, uh, ethnic groups, um, including, as Cash mentioned, uh, um, uh, um, immigrants. And unfortunately, this notion of uh, people voting against their economic interests uh, has been a recurring theme in American politics, and especially with regard to uh, uh, poor semi-skilled, less educated uh, white voters. Um, 
to such an extent, uh, I think I mentioned on, on one of the programs before that there, there's an interesting book called Dying of Whiteness uh, that in, they are willing to support or to oppose policies that would actually help them and in, and in many cases keep them literally alive, especially with regard to healthcare, because they think that those policies are, are helping uh, the unworthy, the undeserving, as opposed to them. It's helping the other as opposed to them. And so they're willing to oppose those kinds of things. And in many instances, it can be documented that these people are dying as a result of the lack of health care and the lack of other uh, the things as a part of the, uh, of the uh, social safety net. And uh, so it's, it's a... Uh, it's a problem, um, um, and that's an understatement, really. And, and as I said, it's a recurring thing. And, and unfortunately, you have people who are very skilled, as Cash mentioned, at exploiting that kind of thing. And uh, we are so polarized now that I'm not sure if we would ever be able to bring together um, uh, April people of similar interests um, in a way that could have a profound transformative effect on politics and public policy uh, in the United States. And that actually was going to be my, my next question, right, which is, can we see a possible future fusion movement, right? Because this, th there was a fusion movement in Wilmington in 1894, 1896. We saw that coalition, that fusion broken in 1898. And it was broken by focusing on race and then, of course, sex. And as both of you have described, race is one of those points that are emphasized over and over by the Republican Party to try and get people, and they have successfully gotten people to vote against interest. What do we need to have happen for there to be a fusion movement or coalition around people based on their shared collective interests as opposed to identifying just based on race? Well, I think the closest thing that, 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 that we have to that now is, uh, is a movement being led by somebody who we all know, and, and, and that's a bishop, um, the William Barber, uh, uh, and his Poor People's Campaign, uh, because poor whites and blacks have more in common than they have differences. Uh, and what he is doing is uh, providing a model. He wants to get away, he's intentional about this whole notion of fusionism and avoiding the typical labels to the Democrat versus Republican, left versus right, as opposed to right and wrong. And, and he is providing that model. And I think that more of us need to pay attention to it and replicate it throughout the country to be able to do those kinds of things and to pull people together who, as I said, have more in common than they have differences. All right. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the 1898 Wilmington Massacre. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio, journalist Cash Michaels, who is a highly regarded reporter for the Wilmington Journal, the Carolinian and other media outlets. And our political guru, Professor Jarvis Hall, of the NCCU Department of Political Science. We're going to have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us.
Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your community event spotlight. Are you looking for something to do in Durham? Check out the Civil Rights Legacy Downtown Durham Walking Tour. This event is held every third Saturday at 10 a.m. from now until November 20th. The tour is a great way to learn about the rich history of African Americans in the city of Durham. You can find more details about this event and register at discoverdurham.com slash events. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your community event spotlight. Thank you. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with political science professor Jarvis Hall of the NCCU Department of Political Science and Cash Michaels, who is a journalist and a highly regarded reporter with the Wilmington Journal. And we've been talking this hour about the Wilmington race riot, the coup d'etat, which took place in 1898 on November the 10th. And we've been talking about the parallels between what happened then, what is going on today, um, strategies that that were effective at the time that continue to be effective today. And we've got one more segment to talk about this very important issue. And I'd like to cash, kind of go back to an earlier question that um, Irv had asked, which is about education. And so in response to my question about how can we get to the point of building coalitions, lasting coalitions that go across racial lines, Jarvis, of course, mentioned the wonderful work that's being done by Reverend Barber. Um, can people fully understand the possibility without understanding the history? And, and as you noted, you know, the history of this country, especially as it relates to race, race is not particularly taught well anyway. We've got attacks on teaching real history under the guise of critical race theory. Um, but how can we really understand what's possible if we don't have an understanding of what has worked in the past? Can you just expand upon that a little bit more? I think you raised an uh, excellent point, actually. Um, if, I think it goes back to the old saying, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Um, and uh, one of the reasons why you're having the uh, remembrances of, of uh, the Wilmington Race Massacre about 123 years ago, one of the reasons why you're having this program, um, uh, you know, one of the reasons why you, you still have books coming out, et cetera, et cetera, is because um, there are lessons to be learned from what happened uh, in this country that was um, uh, shameful um, and, and yet spoke to the core of, of of unfortunately who we're all about, namely that there are uh, citizens in this country who believe that power is everything. They don't want to share it. They don't believe in sharing it. They believe that God put them here. And see, and that's the key. A lot of times when we have problems in this country, uh, we have the nerve and gall to attach God's name to it. And that, and that seems to justify what we do after that. And so um, w- when you have people believing that it is their destiny 
to wipe out the red man. Uh, it is their uh, destiny to enslave the black man. It is, it is their, uh, uh, their destiny to, to destroy the yellow man, um, to destroy everybody else uh, except for those who look like him, if, if he's white. Um, it is a mindset. Um, how we come about uh, understanding the fact that, that God made us all equal. We are the ones that screw things up, not him. We, we screw things up by virtue of history, the, the various wars and, and conquering peoples and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and and uh, those reflexes continue to this day. When we read about history and, and, and read about one country going to uh, conquer and enslave another, we think, okay, well, that was, that was two, three, 400 years ago. And not realizing that those impulses are still very much alive today. Uh, and what's worse, um, we've improved the technology so that <laughs> when, when, when those impulses come about, someone doesn't have to get uh, a whole army together. All they have to do is press a couple of buttons and that's it, the job is done. Uh, so when you have uh, uh, imperialistic impulses coupled with unmitigated power, if not gall, then you have uh, close to what we have today. And it is by virtue of uh, leadership of people such as uh, Reverend Barber, uh, who leads an extraordinary uh, movement, the Poor People's Campaign, and Repairers of the Breach, and former head of the NAACP here in North Carolina. Uh, when you have uh, people elected to office, uh, particularly many of your progressives, who believe strongly that, that um, uh, we should be using the vote uh, and whatever power we do have to help the least of these uh, to attain the same uh, uh, rights, same resources, or at least the same opportunity uh, uh, to gain the same resources. Uh, and and it, it all circles all back to the vote. Let me just read a portion of the uh, Declaration of White Supremacy which was uh, authored uh, in uh, 1898. Uh, believing that the Constitution of the United States contemplates a government to be carried on by an enlightened people, believing that its framers did not anticipate the enfranchisement of an ignorant population of African origin, and believing that the men of the state of North Carolina who joined in forming the union did not contemplate for their descendants a subjugation to an inferior race. Does that proclamation echo the thinking and the mindset of our politics today? Absolutely. That could have been written today, quite frankly, and it's a shame that uh, all of us know that. Uh, all of us on this program, all of us listening to this program know that, that there are people walking the earth today 
who who believed. I don't know how old that 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 that, that, that proclamation or declaration uh, uh, is. Would it would say it went back to eighteen eighteen nineties? Eighteen ninety eight. Okay, okay. So one hundred and twenty three years. Uh, but but it's a shame there are people who who today believe that um, when we elected Barack Obama, and one can argue that that some of our modern day problems today started when when, when we elected a black president and and then reelected him in, in uh, four years later. One can argue that 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 that, that a lit a fuse under a lot of these white supremacists. Uh, that suggested that uh, they would never want to see something like that happen again. And then to make matters worse now, we're learning that by the year 2050, that uh, white people will be in the minority in this country. Um, peoples of color will uh, be in the majority uh, in this nation. Uh, this is a nation that despite its uh, great achievements and despite its great power, uh, is is morally uh, uh, weak when it comes to dealing with what that flag and that constitution is really supposed to be the, uh, about, despite the many many contributions of many brave Americans to uh, to protect it and represent it. I thought what was interesting in what you read or was uh, the repeated phrase I "did not contemplate." So just inconceivable that, that these people would be a part of the body politic. Uh, would be I, I mean, it was a restatement of the Dred Scott decision to a large extent from a political perspective. Um, and and the thing is, uh, that was a declaration then. But we have to look at how those kinds of things uh, have been supported and reinforced um, in in. Uh, how history is taught in uh, our cultural representations, uh, in our popular culture, uh, how it is uh, uh, reinforced those kinds of things that we can't think that these people are simply, uh, as I mentioned earlier, not worthy. They're undeserving. Um, there may be some that we could sort of look at in a different way, but we don't really consider them Black. Michael Jackson, you know, uh, but but for the most part, as a group, as a collective, these people are not deserving. And uh, what we have to do, I think Cash is right. I think uh, uh, the election of Barack Obama was a quote unquote wake up call for many of them. And uh, how dare us elect a black person when we can't even conceive of them as being a part of the body politic as president of, of the United States. And um, so, so for many, it was a call to arms, literally and figuratively, unfortunately. And uh, uh, so, uh, we just have to be aware of, of what is going on, and we have to combat. Uh, what disturbs me, this is the, what disturbs me about where we are now. And there have been different versions of this before, is that we are in. Uh, a post-truth era. I mean, there's no truth now. I mean, there's no real, no absolute truth. There are facts that people have and that they promote. Uh, and the only facts that they believe are those that are consistent with what they already believe. And uh, that puts us in a very dangerous kind of situation. And, uh, uh, and it really frightens me. You know, 
Um, Cash, there was something that you were saying um, off the air about hypocrisy being the strategy. And as Jarvis was talking about us being in this post-truth era, uh, that, you know, and, and you've got people operating in a manner that seems completely inconsistent with the values that we express this country, you know, um, uh, provides for. And when you mentioned that, when you said that phrase, something clicked in me, right? That that this is part of the plan. Can you just expound upon this notion of hypocrisy being this, that that is in fact the strategy? Well, that actually belongs to um, uh, Professor David Blight of Yale University, who um, he's a history professor there. I'm pretty sure Jarvis Hall um, is familiar with him, uh, who wrote the book, A Race and Reunion, where he he says that um, uh, given what happened actually in 1898, uh, using that as a prime example, and then, and then what happened then, if you fast forward 123 years to January 6th of this year, um, uh, where, where what, the way Republicans are, are acting, have acted, and are acting um, uh, makes no sense um, there's no, there's no end game to it that anyone who is reasonable can, can see, um, hypocrisy is, uh, is, is the strategy. Confusion is the end game, so to speak, in order to keep people off guard, off balance, in order to attain this power, changing the rules of the game, not doing things fairly, um, uh, never mind what the Constitution says. Never mind what the law says. Never mind what 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 the rules say. Um, if if it gets you power, do it, and we'll worry about. We'll be in control of everything later. It'll it'll make sense to us later. We'll make it make sense. Uh, when you have people thinking like that and not respecting, not having values, I think that's an important important uh, word in all of this not having the values that this nation is supposed to be built upon. You know, we built the civil rights movement based on values. That, that, that's how we got over it. And, and, and of course, values are, are, are critical uh, in this uh, process. And uh, I think uh, Professor Hall raised the, uh, uh, the point of this uh, American democracy. And what does this uh, democracy mean? And what is it that is of value to African-Americans and people of color as we pursue uh, this uh, American uh, democracy. So, Professor uh, Hall, can you kind of just, you know, talk about a little bit that, that, that notion of the pursuit of this uh, democracy that we're in? Uh, yes, we are a part of an imperfect union. And, and it is a pursuit. It, it, it is a uh, it is a constant struggle to to uh, uh, to maintain it and to and to continue to knock on the door of uh, of our democracy. And um, uh, I think that's something a lot of people don't understand uh, is the fact that it, ha- it, it is it is a constant struggle. Uh, you you often hear people when they've experienced some modicum of uh, electoral success, uh, uh, you, you know, they sit back almost, you know, and say, we got this and, and everything's good. When Barack Obama was elected, 
uh, um, I remember hearing people say, well, uh, especially in uh, in uh, 2012, when uh, people were going around trying to get him reelected, you know, Barack got this. You know, we won't have to do it. We won't uh, have to do anything else. No, you have to double down. You have to double down because certainly the other side is going to double down. You're always going to have opposition. You know, power concedes nothing without a demand. I, I mean, that that was true when Frederick Douglass said it uh, then, and and it's true now. And, and and in order for us to have the power to do the kinds of positive things to change uh, the quality of life of people in our communities, in the black community as well as in uh, uh, the white community and the community. Uh, um, and the communities of all peoples, we have to work hard at it and we, and, and we have to demand it uh, as opposed to just thinking that they're just going to hand it over to us. Uh, if they do hand it over to us, we should look at that with a great, uh, a great degree of skepticism, uh, like what's going on here? Uh, uh, so we have to get in there. And uh, something that Cash mentioned is that we really have to pay attention to the rules of the game. Because when you change the rules of the game, that really determines who wins and who loses mm-hmm. uh, in terms of uh, redistricting, in terms of uh, how the legislative process takes place. Uh, you know, when I was going over to the legislature, uh, uh, working with the NAACP, I was just amazed. I mean, you read about how a bill becomes law, right? Okay, you go over there and find out how it really becomes law. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you have to be aware of not only the, uh, the the formal rules, but the informal rules, as well as those who are the uh, power brokers and the gatekeepers for what actually takes place over there. And so we need a lot of political education. A lot of people look at all of that that I just said and say, oh my God, it's too much. I don't understand that. But it's really not that difficult. And it is incumbent upon us to work hard to educate people to show how they can actually play a role in in bringing about change. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you mentioned that we have to understand the rules of the game and that the rules are always changing, that is part of a constant history as well. You know, and the Wilmington massacre is a perfect example of that. We all thought that if you pull together coalitions, you get people to vote, you win the election, you're in office, that's what you need to do. And then they've changed the rules. When we think about the voting uh, and disenfranchisement, um, and, and that's something that we need to be aware of. And so this is such an important history for us to make sure we're informed about, that our children are informed about, And we can't emphasize enough on this show because the show is so much about informing the public and keeping ourselves informed that you can't just rely upon what we get in our kind of formal education spaces uh, because they're, again, the rules are changing even when it comes to education and what people will be exposed to. Um, All right, we have just a a few minutes left. Uh, Any final Thoughts as we celebrate, well, I shouldn't say celebrate, as we use today, uh, November 10th, to reflect on the Wilmington Massacre of 1898. Cash, we'll start with you, and then Jarvis will end with you. Yeah, let, let me just simply um, uh, 
simply state that uh, history indeed does repeat itself. So thus, we, we need to learn from it and try to do better. Um, our very uh, survival as a people, as American citizens, uh, depends on our learning as much as possible from what happened 123 years ago in this country, what has happened since uh, uh, in, in the interim, what is happening today. And uh, when you see, and this is the part that scares me, when you see um, uh, grown men and women uh, elected to our Congress of the United States deny history that just took place months ago, deny what we all saw on our television sets, uh, 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 they're trying to take over our U.S. Capitol. When we see people have that kind of gumption, we know we're in trouble. We know we're dealing with folks who, who simply cannot deal with reality. And that's the only way I know how to function, to, to deal with reality. And the only way that I can fight for my family and fight for my community is deal with reality. And that's what we as a people must learn to do deal with reality. Thank you for that. Jarvis, last word. Yeah, I just want to say, uh, because I know we're short on time, I just want to thank uh, you and Irv for uh, uh, bringing this topic to uh, the Legal Eagle Review audience. And uh, uh, and it, it, it is so important. It, uh, uh, it's not just way back there in time. It is now. And, uh, and we have to really be aware of the urgency of now and for the black community that it, that is a constant thing it, 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 it's uh, the urgency of now because our communities are in crisis and uh, um, in order to do what we need to do we need to be aware of that so thank you mm. and thank you both this was a wonderful discussion we have been talking this hour about the ninth about the 1898 wilmington massacre with journalist Cash Michaels, who is a highly regarded reporter with the Wilmington Journal, the Carolinian and other media outlets, and our political guru, Professor Jarvis Hall of the NCCU Department of Political Science. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening listening to the Legal Eagle Review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.